Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. I'm Azaria Keys, and I'm also occupying Lenape land. And for this Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, we'll be speaking about brain and body diversity and building disability readiness in our workplaces. Yes, so if you're listening to this Q&A episode, make sure you've checked out our episode entitled Brain and Body Diversity, because we'll be digging into some of the themes from that episode, answering questions, talking about some behind the scenes moments, and giving some practical tips. Yeah, this episode will be really deep and revealing. And for me, it has already been personal and professionally impactful. So Azaria, let's talk about why this particular topic? Why brain and body diversity? Absolutely. So twofold response on my end. Um, I think that for Sedwick and just in general, as someone who works in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, I'm constantly having conversations with Sedwick's director, Lior Eisenstadt, about how I don't hear enough conversations in the DEI space about brain and body diversity. Um, I don't know if it's because it's sort of a taboo topic. Um, No one wants to really address it, but I think that it's lacking in a lot of the DEI work and you can't have inclusivity if you're excluding specific demographics. So that's one part I think that we really need to do more work in the DEI world around disability, ableism, and really shine a light on how people with brain and body diversities show up and are in our workspaces. And we need to be mindful about how to be more inclusive of those individuals. On a personal note, I have a sister who has spinal muscular atrophy, which is a physical disability that falls under the muscular dystrophy umbrella. And, you know, I am not living her experiences as a woman with a disability. However, I am someone who loves her and I've had to sit back and watch while she experiences this world in oftentimes really hurtful ways. And I am very passionate about bringing awareness to the different realities people within the brain and body diversity communities face. And I will constantly advocate for individuals who have disabilities specifically because I'm driven by my passion to be my sister's protector. And I've seen her struggles in this world. And I hope that we can get to a place where this world is more inclusive of people like my sister. So that's how, you know, I really pushed for this to be a topic. And Sedwick is passionate about this topic as well, because we want to be that center that is paving the way to have more of these discussions in the DEI space. Thank you so much for that, Azaria. I actually hope to meet your sister someday. Quick follow-up question, Darylise. How did you make the decision to share about your experiences with EDS in this episode? It's really interesting, and it's not necessarily something that I consciously make the decision not to talk about, but I think one of the things that is challenging for me as a person who does live with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is that there are days when I feel like it does not impact my ability to function or live or work. And there are other days when it feels like it very much does take the forefront. And so I think one of the things in doing this episode helped me to see was that I have the right to share about my experience, even if my needs aren't severe or static, you know? And so I think it kind of just came out in the course of the interview that I was doing with Elizabeth Smith, 
where I shared with her my experience. And I was like, why wouldn't I share that with our listeners? Right? Like, why would I pretend to take the position of this expert who is a complete outsider to this community when I do have a chronic health condition that does impact me, perhaps not on a daily basis, but certainly on a you know, multiple times a week, multiple times a month basis to various degrees. And I think it's important to be willing to share about that and to look at all that I accomplish personally and professionally as a person who does live with a chronic medical condition. Indeed. And thank you again, Darylise, for for sharing that uh, in this episode. Now, how'd you go about selecting the other voices for this episode? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that on Sedwick's end, we constantly want to uplift the the research and the expertise of faculty members throughout our community here at Temple University, not just at the Fox School of Business. So we really were looking around during the time in which we were prepping for the season. So from Sedwick's point of view, we want to elevate the research that's happening around Temple's community. And we were looking for faculty members who were either doing research directly regarding disabilities or, you know, faculty members who are doing um, work around AI or engineering to create devices or systems that help people with disabilities function easier in this world that's not so set up for people with disabilities. So, Um, We were really happy to find several individuals who somehow their research played into this conversation, and it was just a great opportunity to show some of the work that's being done around our community. For me, one of the really impactful things about this episode was getting the voices of people who do themselves live and work with disabilities, with various sensory needs, with various degrees of sort of cognitive and emotional needs, and then also looking at people who are allies in the space. And I think it's important in any work having to do with creating equity and inclusion to look at what can be done for members of the community by members of the community and also what can be done from those who are in a position to leverage their own privilege and influence to be allies and ideally accomplices. And for me, putting these episodes together, it was a beautiful compilation of looking at the voices of insiders and outsiders and looking at the diversity of disabilities themselves and at brain and body diversity and really looking at like, okay, not all needs are the same and we can't take this sort of uniform approach, but we have to be willing to uplift individuals wherever they are and have an openness to creating environments that are inherently inclusive and building that capacity for disability readiness. So, you know, I, I'm really curious, I put these episodes together and I don't know what is going to be impactful to those listening, but what were the two of your major takeaways from this episode? So one of the big takeaways for me was from Alita who mentioned being perceived as less for asking for mental space. She gave an example of answering phone calls and and sending emails from a hospital bed. And I was like, I've done that too. I've felt in the past that letting folks know that you need a break made you appear weak or incompetent or not able to handle the work that they're paying you to do. And even more so for me being an entrepreneur and not having to have that conversation with one employer versus having that conversation with 
20 clients can be draining. And I've really resonated with that part and, and learned, you know, there's ways to communicate that, you know, in a really concise and, and, and respectful and simple way that, you know, again, assuming the people that you are talking to have an understanding, you shouldn't feel like you're, you're being less of or not providing the service that you wanted. You just need some time to, to level set and, and to get yourself right. And then that should be priority. So I'm glad I do have clients who understand that and I can have those real conversations. But that was a big thing to hear that uh, and hear her perspective and some of the things she did before realizing that. And hopefully she's not taking calls from hospital beds uh, anymore. Yeah, I mean, there were so many amazing voices on this episode. I do want to preface anything that I'm saying by saying that I called my sister last night and told her that we were recording this today and I asked her permission to just speak about being her sister more than anything. So if I draw on any examples from that, I do have my sister's permission, which I think is important when disclosing another person's identity. I think what really resonated with me from this episode, I have spent my life being very aware of my sister's experience. And, you know, she has built a community with people that share very similar experiences as her. And that means that I'm very aware of sort of the struggles of those living with physical disabilities, but I am not as aware of the struggles people who have neurodiversity issues or invisible disabilities, the struggles that they're facing. And so this episode really, really brought some things to light for me that I, I didn't previously know. And I would say that what really stood out most was the fact that you know, I forgot who had said it, but somebody had talked about, you know, one day I wake up and actually I think multiple people mentioned this one day I wake up and the symptoms of my disability look like this. And the next day they look like this. And how is my employer going to meet me where I'm at? And that be acceptable for me to just show up in my natural state, because this is the disability that I'm dealing with, but it's not always going to look the same day in and day out. And how do my employers meet me where I'm at? And I think that is something, you know, on Sedwick's end of things, thinking about workplace culture and having this sense of safety and acceptability and inclusion in the workplace. Well, we oftentimes think about somebody that's already coming in with a disability that we can see and that we somehow have an idea of, of what that disability entails. But the reality is, is that it looks different for everybody, but even with an individual, that disability can show up in different ways on different days. And that is important for managers, coworkers, other employees to think about is that we can't just put somebody in a box and assume that they're always going to stay in that box. And so I started sort of grappling with this idea of, well, how does the workplace adjust for the needs of individuals who face different realities day in and day out based on their disability? So it, it honestly left me um, asking a lot of questions because this is something I'm so passionate about. So I'm really thankful for the guests that spoke on this episode and just what I took away from it. Yeah, you know, I'll say that I took that away from it as well. And it felt really important. Like it felt really, really important to honor and acknowledge people's experience as being fluid and flexible and disability as a category that people can move into and out of throughout their lifetime. And for me, looking at the intersections of things like ableism and ageism have been really important. And I will say that this inspired me to become more open because I do think I hold a position of influence for 
offshore, you know, in the work that I do as a journalist, et cetera. And so these interviews specifically prompted me to write an article that came out in July of 2022 called When Your Disability is Often Invisible, It Can Be Hard to Claim Your Identity. And I'd always thought about things like hidden identities and, you know, visible versus invisible identities when it came to things like race or sexual orientation or gender identity, et cetera. But I hadn't really brought it to um, looking at issues of ability and looking at body diversity and neurodiversity. And so it felt for me like these interviews were game changers and also called me to look at my own, you know, interjected ableism and my own attitudes of performance and striving and wanting to somehow prove that like I'm as capable or, you know, equally capable or whatever, um, even when on a personal level, sometimes I require modifications. And so, yeah, I think this, this one really, really hit home for me um, in terms of how I relate to others. And then also in terms of how I relate to myself. And Azaria, I know that, and thank you for, thank your sister as well for giving you permission to speak about some of her story. And I would love to know, given different things stand out to us for different reasons. And Azaria, what are some of the quotes that stood out to you specifically and why from this episode? So I highlighted them. I mean, this episode, <laughs> I I was really excited about it. So Will had mentioned this idea of inspiration porn. And this is something my sister and I talk about all the time because you know, I don't need to re-explain it, but this idea that you have to, oh my gosh, you're so inspiring because you woke up today and you have a disability. And my sister's like, why? I just woke up, you know? <laughs> and Will specifically used this example of there's not an elevator or an accessible way into the building. And so someone has to carry this physically disabled person up the stairs and everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. And it makes those of us who have able-bodied privilege, feel so inspired, right? And then Will says, but when I look at that video, I, I said, why wasn't there a ramp there? And that sort of played on Will and Tanner's point around universal design, which is something that I am constantly talking about. We have created this idea in our society that when we make these alterations in buildings or whatever, it's specifically for these individuals. And it's a way to really other people, right? We other the the disability community, specifically the physical disability community who relies on these physical alterations in architect. And the reality is we all benefit from it, which was mentioned in the podcast episode. But something that I thought about when I was listening to that point on universal design and just this idea of people moving in and out of the disability space was recently, and it was Tanner who talked about at some point his travel experience. And my sister just had a massive issue with flying and her wheelchair was broken in cargo. And this is actually a real issue that a lot of wheelchair users face every single time they fly and people have died from it because this is somebody's livelihood. It's their ability to get around. And it affected a pretty big business opportunity for my sister that she was traveling for. And she posted these videos on her Instagram platform. And there was this line that has still stuck with me that she said, which was, please do better because you are all just one genetic mutation or accident away from being like me. 
And that was so profound because I think we have such an idea in society that we've othered the disability communities and there's no way that that's going to impact us. And so we don't think about the importance of universal design because I don't need that right now. I'm an able-bodied person. But the reality is, is we really are just each of us one step away from some sort of disability, some sort of accident from happening. And, you know, that really stuck with me because it all comes back to this idea of perfectionism. And I think that oftentimes this othering of the disability communities comes from a place of society tells us we should create this perfectionism within our own lives. And this is how you should look and it should it should appear like this. But when you have to look at somebody specifically with a physical disability, it's that reminder that that could have been you, that can be you. And I think that sometimes, this is my own personal theory, I think that messes up our own internal fixation on perfectionism. And so we don't want to look at them. We don't want to step in their shoes for a day. And so, sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but I think that ultimately the universal design stood out to me this idea of people being inspired by people with disabilities just showing up and living their day-to-day life, which at times, yes, there are inspiring things, but I don't think it needs to be like a fixation on looking for inspiration in somebody else's struggle. So yeah, I'll I'll leave it there. But clearly I was impacted quite a bit by this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's so important. Thank you so much because when you were talking about and I'm sorry about your sister's experience because it's horrible. It's horrific. And the dehumanization that occurs sometimes with people or the minimization of things that have a significant impact on people's ability to live and to work. And one of the things with universal design that I was thinking about is is also the idea of believing that DEI trainings are universal. And that came up a little bit in the episode, like that, oh, well, the skills that work in DEI are always going to work when it comes to members of the disability community who might have a physical need or a sensory need or maybe, you know, a neurological need or a difference in learning style. And so, Zach, you and I conduct DEI trainings all the time. And um, can you talk a little bit more about those training skills needing to maybe be expanded or broadened or changed sometimes when it comes to building disability readiness in the workplace? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know in a lot of the trainings that we've done and conducted in the past, we've had to factor that in, whether it be utilizing closed captions for our presentations. We also, you know, have our uh, rules that we, we let people know when we start. And those usually include telling people to have the freedom to make any adjustments or to uh, leave the broadcast if they have personal needs they need to take care of because we're cognizant of those differences for everybody. So really just incorporating that into our functionality, whether we know someone in our audience has a disability or not, we always keep that at the forefront whenever we're talking to to groups or doing presentations. And also one thing I want to say is that sometimes it's knowing our limitations. Like there are times when I will get inquiries about doing trainings to speak to a specific community or to speak to 
specific areas of inclusion. And I will say, you know, I'm not an expert on this particular topic. I'm not an expert in accessibility in this area. I'm not an expert in, let's say, trans competency education. So sometimes I think really as a practitioner, recognizing that we can work together to make our existing trainings more inclusive, but also that if you're looking to create an accessibility plan in your organization, you really want to look at people who have an expertise in that area. And one thing that stood out to me was roughly 80 to 90% of people with disabilities today are unemployed. I mean, I think it differs depending on what the disability is. And then also looking at the disclosure rates and how low they are compared to what we know to be true about the statistically, it's roughly about 20% of people today have disabilities or have sensory needs of some sort. And so Yeah, like I would just love to take a minute to talk about some of that and talk about the fact that most of us will at some period in our lives experience some type of disability, whether it be permanent or temporary or, you know, et et cetera. So I think just looking at how much of the workforce is, is impacted, looking at how many people are kept out of the workforce as a result of disabilities, and then just looking at the fact that this is something that most of us will have to contend with on a personal level, whether it be for ourselves or for a family member, a loved one, a partner, et cetera. Yeah. I just briefly want to go back to your point about the DEI trainings and say that I think it'll take time to get to a place where DEI trainings better reflect and include those who do have some form of a disability, because right now our society isn't safe enough for people with disabilities to always feel as though they can disclose that. And so until we have more disclosure, which that is not a responsibility on the disability community, it's a responsibility on our society and and employers and leadership to really create safe spaces for people to feel as though they can disclose. But once you start to have more disclosure, I think that you can better create these trainings to include more realities Because, for instance, Slobodan mentioned that he was looking at these sensitivity trainings, and he mentioned something that I had never even thought about when you think about inclusivity in trainings. And that is when you're talking about sensitivity trainings and you hear the idea of read body language and these water cooler discussions, and that's all a part of being aware of and sensitive of other people's needs and experiences. But that action alone, right? Reading body language or your personal body language might be impacted by how you operate within the realm of your disability. But you don't necessarily know that as a trainer if you're not privy to the different experiences certain disabilities have. And that comes with more disclosure, which comes as a result of creating safer spaces to disclose and understand how people show up with their identities in the disability community. So I just wanted to sort of add that in. But then, yeah, my personal theory is that we're all, and Allegra, my sister's theory is that we're all just sort of one moment away from facing disability ourselves. And I think that that threatens our notion of perfectionism and beauty. And so we really, as a society and as individuals, need to reconsider what it is to be beautiful, what it is to honestly throw out this notion of perfectionism because it's toxic. (laughs) And I think that it really, this is just a reminder that disability shows up in our lives in so many different ways. And one, how can I be a better ally 
to those who do have disabilities, but then two, how do we just create a world that honestly doesn't emphasize the fact that you have a disability, like, oh, we're doing this because you have a disability and sort of ostracizing people, but instead saying, because we know that this is an experience and a reality that we all can and a lot of us will likely face at some point, why don't we just like create a world that accepts these differences? Because in some way they're, I hate to use the word normal, but in some way they're normal to the human condition, right? Because we as humans are bound to get injured, bound to have some sort of disease at some point. That's a reality we are all facing. And I think we like to think that we're like so separate from that, but we're not. Thank you for sharing that, Azaria. So, Darylise, was there anything that didn't make it into this episode that you wanted to include? I would say something that I want to say as a limitation of this episode is that disability is such a broad category. And because we looked at both brain and body diversity together, I just want to say that there was no way to really do justice to the overarching nature of exclusionary practices. And so, you know, there were a lot of disabilities that were not represented, a lot of people's different experiences that were not represented. So hopefully people listening to the episode can take it as information that they can then use to do some of their own independent learning and to know that people are impacted very differently depending on their needs, depending on whether or not their identities are visible, depending on the intersectionality of the other things that they might live with unrelated to the disability, unrelated to whether or not there's is a cognitive need or whether or not there's a sort of a physical structural need based on whether it's temporary or permanent or flexible or dynamic or so i just want to say like there's not a specific thing that i would have added but it is such a broader topic than what we were able to cover in you know an hour plus episode and what about the two of you were there things that you wanted to know more about that we didn't talk about in the episode for me what popped into my mind when i first saw the title before listening When I thought about body diversity, my brain went to the physical element of people as it relates to being very tall or obese or short or any of those things that I think people recognize right away and make judgments on right away. And how does that impact the workspace? You know, I think that's kind of where my mind went to when I first heard it. And of course, I love everything we covered. But that was one area where I was curious what professionals in the space would have had to say about some of those those types of body diversities. And that is such a significant topic and one that hopefully we can cover in future seasons. I know we did, a, you know, an episode season one about body diversity, but it wasn't related to work specifically. And there are all sorts of studies and research out there about discriminatory hiring based on people's bodies or the perception of their attractiveness. I mean, I think 60% of corporate CEOs are over six feet tall, and that does not correlate to the height, uh, the, you know, sort of average height, which might be around five, eight, five, nine or something. And so for men, because most CEOs are still men. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot, I think, in terms of exclusion and discrimination that happens based on people's bodies and privilege that happens based on being perhaps like a thin-bodied, taller individual or, or what have you. 
what about you, Azaria? What would you have maybe wanted to see explored more? I would definitely agree that I think both neuro and body diversity are such broad topics that you really can't do it justice in, honestly, like a whole season would have to probably be devoted to that. Um, But I think for me, and this is, you know, my bias and having experience with my sister's disease, but for instance, my sister, her disease doesn't impact her cognitively, but it impacts all of her muscles in her body, including the muscles in her throat, which that's how we swallow. That's how we clear our throat to, you know, come across clearer in conversation. So my sister now has a speech impediment and it makes her really hard to understand. And I would have actually liked to have heard some people on the episode who have something that audibly affects them, right? So something that a disease that impacts how they sound. My sister, when she gives talks, has to use computer assistance to say her you know, she'll type it into her phone and it'll repeat it out loud for her. And it has like a very Siri sounding voice, which I think we need to work on. But I would have loved to just sort of hear diversity in that, right? Because we, the people who we talked to on this episode who experience living with a disability or multiple, these are all people that we can communicate with, right? We can talk back and forth with, at least in that moment. And it would have been nice to bring in that reality that another thing that perpetuates the stigma of having a disability is when people can't understand you, when people can't hear you clearly, when you don't sound like the normal voice we've created in our head that a person should sound like. I think that communication is so key because what was powerful was that every person on this episode could communicate their experience to you. But if you are someone who cannot clearly communicate in the way the world tells us you should, then your experience somehow gets left out of the conversation, right? And that's a constant issue. So I think that that's something I was thinking about while listening to this season, but really impactful stories from everyone. And I think that that just goes, it points to the fact that we need more time to talk about this because everyone's experience is so different. And there are ways that some people are impacted by their disease that others are not. And that is a story and stories that we should be highlighting. Yeah. And I think to that point, it it would have been and would be perhaps like to think about in the future, hugely impactful and important to include people who aren't typically able to tell their narratives in ways that we might expect. And also, I think it looks to like, what are the limits of podcasting as a platform and like looking at, okay, so we try to be inclusive, we have transcripts, you know, et cetera, but like what modifications, what might we need to make on our ends to allow someone to speak and tell their story who maybe doesn't have access to the same types of communication as some of the other people that we've interviewed. So I think that's really important and I'm definitely going to reflect on that. And perhaps that's something we can think about in future seasons, like how to incorporate those narratives in ways that are honoring of a person's ability to communicate and then also like really get their stories and their messages heard by our listeners in ways where they will be impactful. So I thank you so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, when you think about it, telling your story is how you humanize your experience for others. And so if there's a portion of individuals whose stories don't get to be told because of how they're told and how they're received via communication, then we're just continuing to perpetuate the issue. 
Um, and so, you know, big proponent of elevating people's stories in an inclusive manner. Such great points. And I look forward to seeing uh, what we do to accommodate in the future. I think this is definitely something we're going to look into, Darylise. I feel this would be a great time to insert our expert voice. Just as we've done in previous seasons, we're featuring a subject matter expert who will answer our listener calling questions on the subject and share more about why this topic matters to them and why we should all be invested in learning more and creating greater equity. Yeah, a major thank you to Tanner Gears, who sat down with me yet again um, to be our featured Q&A expert voice in this episode. Tanner is the president and founder of Accessibility Officer, which is a data-driven disability inclusion firm. And in his work, he helps companies drive ability, D&I, and maximize ROI, which stands for return on investment. So he really looks at like how do we create inclusive company cultures that are disability ready, that are benefiting employees and benefiting employers, where it really is looking at like how do we uplift level everyone's experience in the workplace. Tanner also serves as a board member for Menus for All and recently co-authored Foresight Augmented Realities Solution Proposal for the United States. He's just a dynamo who has experience living with and living without disability and is really uniquely equipped to speak on the issue, both from a personal perspective and from a professional perspective. So I'll share that interview with you now, and then Zach and Azaria will discuss it. Can we demystify diversity? Making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder we embark. Invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Well, I'm curious, I mean, how much of your work, because I know in our interview, we really talked about on the employer side, but how much do you do with the employee side? So a little bit on the employee side. So for the certified accessibility testing program that I've, I've launched, uh, we have our first cohort going right now with uh, Helen Keller in partnership with Helen Keller Services for the Blind, where we're training people who are blind screen reader users to become essentially QA analysts for accessibility, certified accessibility testers. And so we do do some job readiness for that. You know, it's a job readiness training program and we do help them. Uh, find employment opportunities beyond the program. That's one of the unique differentiations is that, you know, through my, thankfully, through my business, I'm able to guarantee them at least some employment, right, on the job training. And I think it's so critical for those young professionals or those who are stepping into a new field, especially those with a disability, to have that mentorship, to have that guidance and support to really cross the line because um, getting the job is the first part, but sustaining employment, be, being competitive in the workplace, that's the that's one that's often overlooked in a lot of vocational rehabilitation programs. Like how do we position uh, students and clients to do that? So, you know, given, you know, leveraging our experience in the industry and our relationships, we're able to help them develop those skills, develop those um, those requirements, those prerequisites, the unspoken ones that employers expect 
And that leaves a big gap for a lot of people with disabilities. And I'm curious, I mean, I think mentorship that you mentioned is so important. And in the area of disability readiness and accessibility, I think it's still, there's still so much work to do. And there's not, you know, I I know there are more people, more and more people operating in the space now, but who were some of your mentors when you were getting started? Oh my goodness. So, uh, you know, Mark Ziska was a big mentor of mine. He was actually my first employer and founder a company called CPOHR that, uh, you know, way back when in 2014, 2015, 2016 was pushing and selling an accessibility job board, job boards specifically designed for digital accessibility. That was pretty much on the cutting edge there, way ahead of its time. There, Kirk Adams, former CEO and president of the Seattle Lighthouse and the American Foundation for the Blind, and now uh, entrepreneur and consultant uh, with his own practice. Kirk Adams has been tremendous. Albert Rizzi uh, has been influential in supporting me when I was getting started. He believed in me and uh, really helped uh, guide me as a young professional, a young executive professional. And then, of course, my mom who always has believed in me more than anybody else and has pushed me beyond my limits in so many ways. And I feel like right now, um, as calm as I am, I've I've never been under more stress, more pressure, more struggle. And the only way that I feel like I'm able to hold it together is because this is how my mama raised me. I mean, we do not have to explore this, but did you want to say more about why you're under so much stress and pressure? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just that's the nature of the game when you have employees, people's livelihoods, they count on you to put food on the table. And, you know, when a deal doesn't come through or a deal goes sideways or fires come up all the time. And so I jokingly say that I'm like a volunteer independent firefighter that it's just the nature of the beast. And so, and then there's other stuff too. There's other personal issues. Like my daughter was just diagnosed with an impairment and that hurts so bad. And already, you know, going to her school and such and being there and normally I'll have an eye patch on or I've got my cane on or in my hand and kids are not nice. And so I know that my daughter's catching some language around that. And then on top of it, now she has this impairment. And so I'm sure she's going to catch some stuff around that. So I'm pretty stressed on a personal level as well as a professional level. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so curious, Tanner, like to be someone who does this work, who's constantly pioneering safe spaces for others. How do you deal with those situations when people are, as you put it, like very mildly not nice or when people are exclusionary or discriminatory? Because I think sometimes there's the illusion that the professional equips us personally in ways that like, you know, you're still a person with, I'm still a person with feelings. Like it's sometimes hard to to translate the work that I would do in a professional arena and my ability to step outside of it on a professional level from like when things impact me personally. Yeah, it's really tough. And I think the burden that many people with disabilities face today is is the constant education and awareness that we have to communicate. And sometimes it really can feel like we're just talking to a wall, a societal wall. 
definitely some metaphors in there. But for example, yesterday I was flying into Sky Harbor International, which is the friendliest airport in the United States is their slogan. And I've consistently reached out to their ADA coordinator and spoken on the phone and been in email chains and letting them know about the discriminatory and exclusionary practices that they have there and the ridiculously low customer experience or poor customer experience that travelers with disabilities face as a result of A and B and Prospect. Those are the two major contractors that own the deals with the major airlines, Southwest, Delta, American, United, et cetera. So whenever someone goes to the airport and they need extra assistance, whether it's in a wheelchair or it's just a meet and assist, there's these third parties that deliver those services. And, you know, one is, is that really those services are irrelevant for many people with disabilities because just the infrastructure of the building itself is inaccessible. Right. If accessibility features were embedded into the building as they should be, then many people with disabilities would not need or rely on Prospect or ABM, these third party contractors to get from ticketing to the gate, from the gate to baggage claim, et cetera. So there's that. And the experience that I'm specifically talking about is I get off the plane. There's seven wheelchairs on the plane with me, six or seven wheelchairs. And so I get off and they ask me to wait at the uh, top of the jetway in the terminal for them to unload the rest of the people using wheelchairs. I'm fine. Then the gate coordinator, I don't believe she was a gate agent. She had a higher title than that called the ABM PSA for me and our PCA, personal care attendant, personal care assistant. And this gentleman, they're standing like 10 feet away from me. It's it's so hilarious that as if I can't hear them talking about me. So the guy has seemingly never worked with a blind person before, doesn't understand what to do. Should I get, he's asking, should I get a wheelchair? How am I going to push him? She's like, no, he doesn't need a wheelchair. He will just grab your arm like this. And I'm assuming that she grabbed his elbow. And so he's like, oh, okay. And then he comes right up to me. He's like, come with me. And he grabs me by the wrist and starts to pull me. And I don't know about you, but I would never go up to another person in public, especially if I've never met them before, never introduced them before, and just grabbed them by the wrist and said, come with me. I think that in some parts of the world that that could put you in significant harm's way. I think in other parts of the world that might get you killed. I think that in other parts of the world, people would look crazy. But for people with disabilities, this is an everyday experience. I can't tell you how many times that people have grabbed me by the wrist and just pulled me. Maybe didn't even say anything. Just grabbed me by the wrist or by the backpack that I'm wearing and moved my person around. And while it seems like not that big of a deal, it is a big deal. And it's humiliating. It's degrading. And demoralizing it's it takes everything that i've worked for since becoming a person with a disability and just poops all over it and so this is the kind of the burden that people with disabilities carry as atlas per se you know with the world on our shoulders of awareness and education and sometimes that can be frustrating sometimes it can be tiresome and exhausting but it's the burden that we face right now and it's so sad that there's such little education, little awareness, and little training. And this is circling all the way back to employer and employee disability readiness, is that someone's not getting the training that they need to service the customers or service the employees in the ways that they need to. 
then how do we fix that? And when can we change it? Thank you for sharing that experience. And I'm sure that that is one of many experiences that you have had. And you shared something in what you were saying that really reminded me of our first interview, Tanner. And you said you probably never worked with a blind person before. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about in our first interview was about how this collapsing of the category of disability and people thinking that like, oh, well, because I have training with this particular population or because I've met someone with this particular issue that somehow that's going to apply to all members of the disability community or that that training is transferable and just how problematic that can be. And so how do you kind of work to create environments where people are disability ready and where that transcends an individual label or individual sort of set of circumstances? Absolutely. I mean, I'm an expert disability advocate. I am not an expert in all abilities, right? So when we work with employers and we're doing assessments on the organization, we're talking with their executives, we're asking questions to procurement, we're figuring out how IT communicates and, and what are their policies and processes. Basically, everything that you do for all your other employees, like how are we making sure that that includes people with disabilities in a way that supports them, you know, going from recruitment to retirement? So I'm assessing people and organizations for their gaps. And when we identify a gap, I may have to loop in an expert that specializes in this field, in autism or in quadriplegics or in some other type of cognition, sensory or mobility disability. I am not an expert in all disabilities. And I don't expect any employer or employee to be either. But what the goal is, is to be aware. And that what's the awareness is that, hey, is that somebody has a need that's different than my own. How we've been doing things in the past does not support these people. And what changes do we need to make in order to do that, to rectify that? At the end of the day, that's that's all it comes down to. And so looping in the right experts to help facilitate that is 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 prudent, right? So I don't claim to be an expert in every single type of disability at every level of severity across the continuum. And, and I emphasize that so much is because employers, you know, hiring managers, et cetera, when they're interfacing with all different types of people, just as, as diverse as, as we all are, people with disabilities are equally as diverse, with equally diverse needs, with equally diverse symptoms or, or situations that, that they have to overcome and, and face. And another huge component is like, you can just kind of feel the shock, right? When you tell people that, hey, like disability severity can change from day to day, meaning that my disability today might be more severe tomorrow, less severe the next day, and I don't have any control over that. So how do I, as an employer, adjust to accommodate that? And so the agility and flexibility, the inclusionary policies and processes that support the dynamic nature of disability, that is critical for disability readiness. Yeah, well, and employers can do that work both proactively and reactively, right? Like as a in advance or as a response to a situation. And I'm curious, how do you support them in doing that work proactively so that they're not dealing with mistakes and cleaning up after messes? Again, I don't have the firsthand experience of what every employee's experience is. And so that's the reason why we want to have like, data-driven information, 
facts informing the decision-making process of the business, right? So if we're just winging it, if we're just saying like, hey, we want to be more inclusive of people with disabilities. And it's like, how do we go about doing that? I don't know. Like, what training do you need? Do you want a general disability readiness training? Number one, none of your other employees want to be in trainings that don't apply to them. Number two is like, why are you going to waste money on a training that might not be effective? Number three, how are you going to be measuring the outcomes of that training? What are the KPIs? What are the data collection measures that you've put in place to understand how it's moving the needle? And so if we want to start shooting the gun blindly in the dark, trying to hit the target, we can totally do that. Absolutely. But we could be smart. We could just assess the organization. We could talk with people. We could understand employee sentiment on disability, we could get data that actually accurately informs the decision-making process to get smart and strategic about how we're gonna approach this, what we're gonna focus on, where's the lowest hanging fruit, and where are the biggest gaps in our organization? This is true for me too. You know, it's really important, like as a business owner, I hire outside consultants to provide me counsel on how to better run my business. That's because one, I don't know everything, and two, I don't specialize in everything. So if I want my business to be the best that it can be, I better be tapping into outside consultants and counsel to help me get there. For disability inclusion, it's the same thing. You can totally hire a chief diversity officer. You can totally hire an ADA coordinator, but one person cannot fill the gap because one person is not enough to completely cover everything, every need, everyone, all the time for every disability. It's not possible. And so how we do that is we bring in outside counsel to assess the organization, inform the decision-making process with actual data relevant to where we're at right now, where we're trying to go, and then we can develop a strategy, actual tactics, a roadmap to get there. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, 
Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world local and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. You know, one thing I love is sort of like looking at what does this organization need? And that's what I try to do in my work when I'm brought in as an outside consultant, like what are the needs of your employees? And but something that I've found has been that sometimes if an organization doesn't have a high level of trust, and if the employees have felt like their needs aren't being met, some of the more marginalized employees, they're sort of like exhausted in advance and sometimes don't even really want to do anything. So like, you know, give feedback or support the organization for understandable reasons because they feel like, you know, my needs haven't been met and they're not going to be met. And like, why should I be more invested than this employer is? And so I'm just wondering, like, do you run up against situations where employees' needs aren't being met, but also they're just feeling... I don't know, dejected or demoralized and like not really necessarily wanting to play an active role in the change because it feels like they're pretty exhausted. Yeah. I mean, you know, CPOs, CHROs, whoever the executive is overseeing the talent and human resources can quickly understand. I mean, there's going to be fluctuations depending on the industry, but do you have 18% or more of your workforce disclosing their disability. If you don't, then there's a problem because that tells me that your employees are afraid or don't want to disclose the fact that they have a disability because it could compromise something or they don't have, like you said, the trust in the employer to actually meet their needs, to understand their needs and to give them the support that they need to meet their fullest potential. You know, the funny thing is, is that there's many people, quote unquote, without disabilities that could use accommodations or assistive technology or other resources that are pretty low in cost that help improve their productivity, improve their performance. An inclusive employer is a rising tide that raises all boats. 
And so not only are we able to support people without disabilities achieve greater, higher levels of performance, but we're able to achieve greater, higher levels of performance from people who may be, quote unquote, underperforming or satisfactory employees. There's so many other ancillary benefits. If we have a like, let's say someone without a disability, you know, a team of people with and without disabilities, and it doesn't matter what the mix is, but if those people without disabilities they have relationships with the people with disabilities. And I'll just use disabled and non-disabled instead of people with disabilities and without disabilities, just to make it clear. If we have non-disabled employees working with disabled employees together, and the non-disabled employees are needing to pick up some of the slack of the disabled employees, not because the disabled employees are incapable, but because they don't have the tools, the resources, accommodation, support to do what they were hired to do to demonstrate their capacity and ability, then we're taking away from the performance and productivity of people, non-disabled employees. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're cutting off our nose to spite our face. It's a lot of these invisible things that employers aren't really aware of that all add up. And that's why, you know, coming back to employee sentiment, it's like, you want to know where you stand on disability readiness, check what the percentage of your employees have disclosed the disability, and then do an employee sentiment survey on disability inclusion, you know, an anonymous survey. You'd probably have to bring in a third party to run that survey because your employees don't trust you to keep their information confidential. You and I probably see articles, I see them all the time on LinkedIn, of employees do not trust HR anymore. You know, it's 30%, 40%, 50% of employees don't trust HR anymore. And why is that? For disability and inclusion, for people with disabilities, it's like those experiences that I've described today in the airport, in the workplace, that make them recluse, conceal their disability, do everything that they can to hide it, to work around it, to overcome it. And that's the environment we're creating rather than one of openness, trust, support, accommodations, resources, family, team. One of the things that I think was really encouraging for me was learning that it doesn't take a long time to lose trust. That's kind of a bummer, right? That a couple incidents or a few bad interactions and trust can really take a hit. But it also doesn't take a tremendous amount of time to build trust again, you know, just a shift in culture, the repeated inclusion of a manager, like someone taking an active interest in their employees and really demonstrating consistently that they're showing up, but it doesn't take forever to lose trust. It doesn't take forever to build trust. And so I'm just wondering, Tanner, like what are some concrete things that employers or fellow employees can do in a workplace setting to really demonstrate their commitment to inclusion? Yeah, it really gets back down to vulnerability. So we have to communicate openly, transparently, that we've been doing it wrong. We will recognize we've been doing it wrong. We know that we've been doing it wrong and we will not be doing it wrong anymore. We're going to be actively working to fix this problem. You know, if a pipe breaks in the basement, people don't cover it up. They say, hey, we got a pipe broken in the basement. We're bringing in a plumber. Sorry for the inconvenience. The communication happens. But when we have a pipe broke in our disability readiness, we sweep it under the rug. We try to hide it. We, we pretend like it doesn't exist. We ostrich the situation. And part of it is, in, in, is executives and CEOs and businesses picking up the responsibility and making the change. Also, too, I am not 
unaware of what's happening right now in societal norms and our sociology shift towards this cancel culture. So on one side, we have some employers wanting to do the right thing. Other employers don't care. But I think both of them feel the pressure and stress of like, hey, if we're vulnerable about this, legally, what does that mean for us? Yeah. And that's a hard one. I mean, I, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't pretend to know anything about that, but I, I do know that it's probably more important than ever, I think, to be vulnerable, but it's also the stakes of vulnerability are higher than ever. And I don't know that everyone is equipped for that. That's why we have chief legal officers. That's why we have outside counsel. Same thing with disability inclusion. Get that expert to provide you guidance to keep you within the lines. I've never heard, and I just may not be aware, but I've never heard of an employer saying, hey, we have a problem. We recognize we have a problem and we're working hard to fix it because you, talent, you, employees, you, team leads, you, frontline workers, you, middle management, we care about you. So we're going to figure this out. Here's our plan. We're going to start asking questions. We're going to be assessing things. We're going to be creating working groups. We're going to be analyzing things. We're going to be making changes here. Policies, processes, how we do things has been wrong and it needs to change now. This is going to be a process. It's going to take time. We're not going to get everything right. But please note that we have the right interest in heart, that we are working really hard. We're bringing outside counsel in to help us fix this problem. And our problem is exclusion. Would that advice be any different in, let's say, like a family situation or an out-of-work situation? I think it's very similar. I mean, you go to a mechanic, they assess the vehicle. You go to a counselor, they assess the family dynamic, you know, marriage, family counseling. Even when we're planning to make changes as a family, if we're moving out of state, we don't just show up. Typically, you don't just show up. You like sell everything and move out and not know where you're going. You could do that. But doesn't it just make more sense to plan a little bit ahead of time, to communicate with each other, to brainstorm, to share ideas, to open up and say, hey, this is my perspective. This is my experience. What do you think? What's your experience? How has this affected you? Those conversations, that information, that openness, that planning, I think happens all the time. Why it's not happening for people with disabilities and disability employee readiness, I don't know. Tanner, I think this would be a really great time to transition over to some of our listener questions. We have a question from David from New York, and David writes, is there long-term or are there long-term mental and emotional impacts on someone who may have a disability when their conditions have not been recognized either in their homes or at work? Yeah, certainly there is. I'm not a trained psychologist but I or psychiatrist, but I love studying human psychology. And then, you know, just thinking anecdotally about myself, when I became blind, the fact that I was diagnosed ADD before there was ever an ADHD, that was never brought into consideration. How is my attention deficit and my blindness going to influence my ability to do things? And then when I can't do something because I don't have the attention, I don't have the bandwidth to do it, is it something that is attributed to my blindness or is it something that's attributed to my neurodiversity? And if neither is recognized, if I'm just someone who's labeled as deficient or insufficient or unsatisfactory, golly, like if I'm wearing all of this pressure or getting all of this pushback or negative feedback 
or negative outcomes and experiences because my disability isn't recognized, it's not embraced either by my family or my employer. Yeah, heck yeah. I mean, especially when disability affects people's mental health. I'd be lying to you if I said I was never depressed. I was severely depressed. I wanted to die. I wanted to commit suicide. I wanted my life to be over. I thought it was meaningless and worthless. Mental health is tough. And when we layer in the stress, the pressure, the lack of awareness, everything that we've talked about before on top of it, if someone is saying to themselves that the internal dialogue is, what's wrong with me versus what am I missing? That's a big differentiation. What am I missing versus what's wrong with me? And if somebody's condition is not diagnosed, it's not appreciated, it's not handled appropriately or managed appropriately by other people, then we can, at least for me, that would send me down into a mental health crisis, right? I think mental health is often underappreciated for people with disabilities, especially when we have, you know, six, seven, eight percent of our population in the workforce identifying as having a disability, and that 10, 11, 12 percent of other individuals that are not recognized, they're not addressed, they're not appreciated. Yeah, there's definitely significant mental health effects. Yeah, and something I can share on a personal level, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I don't even remember when, maybe in 2018, 2019 or something like that. And I am someone who had a rampant eating disorder all throughout high school, throughout college and into my late 20s. I was institutionalized 18 times for anorexia and bulimia, almost died. And those are like clear mental health issues, right? The eating disorder. But what I found out once I realized that I had Ehlers-Danlos is that there's a huge correlation between EDS and eating disorder issues because of the symptoms that people with Ehlers-Danlos often deal with, like when we go to eat or, you know, the different things that can happen in a body that feels like it's out of control because of Tanner, as you mentioned, like those variances in symptoms from day to day. And so for me, there was a tremendous relief. And I think even in my family, like a tremendous relief in realizing that once I could get help with the Ehlers-Danlos, like it made sense of a lot of the symptoms that I've been struggling with mentally and emotionally and psychologically. So I don't blame my EDS for my eating disorder, but I do, it did help a lot of things to make sense. And it helped me to find community and support to know what was going on with my body and with my mind. I love that you're bringing this up because I mean, talking about invisible disabilities and it makes me think about this mental health stuff is like, we try to keep our personal and professional lives separate, right? But smart HR, smart executives, smart managers, smart employers know that people's personal lives come to work. And if we're negatively influencing their professional life, they're taking their professional lives home too. And so how are we augmenting, contributing, exponentially uh, increasing the stress, the pressure, the the depression, the anxiety. I'm an emotional eater, right? And so whenever I'm sad or I'm upset, it's like, oh, I just go and eat chocolate chip cookies until I'm sick or something, you know? And that's not healthy, but that's like my coping mechanism for suppressing the feelings I'm feeling to try to get through it. And if I'm suffering from diabetes, like how does that help me? And if I'm suffering from diabetes and I'm eating, cookies to suppress 
my emotions from getting yelled at at work or feeling like I'm excluded or something's inaccessible and negatively influencing my own physical health because of how I'm feeling at work. And then that's contributing to greater mental health issues. Like, how do I come to work my best self? Right. Oh, my gosh. And I, yeah, I mean, I think that those are some phenomenal questions and not easy answers. But even if people are willing to ask themselves those questions and employers are willing to ask themselves those questions, I think then they're at least on the right path. So we have a question from PJ in Santa Rosa, California, and PJ writes, with a lot of the info seen on social media about neurodiversity, it feels easy to self-diagnose oneself with things like ADHD, autism, and bipolar disorder. What advice do you have for someone who, quote unquote, checks the boxes for a lot of common signs for these types of neurodiverse identities? That's a great question, PJ, and pretty complex. So I stopped taking my attention deficit disorder medication back in 2000, 2001. And then I just got back on in 2020, 2020, 2021. And I was thinking to myself, what was I doing off all these meds? Right. And I need, I need some extra help. And so I went in to my PCP and I'm like, Hey doc, like I've been diagnosed with ADD before. And I think that I know there's more potential inside me. I need extra help. I think I need to get back on some medicine for this. And he's like, cool. And he brings out this, this one pager, asked me a bunch of questions, check, 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 check. And he's like, yeah, we can prescribe this to you. And I was like really kind of blown away at how my previous diagnosis didn't matter. It was like, what's happening, right? And I imagine that there's other mental health conditions like PJ is suggesting that someone might be able to self-diagnose, they could go to their PCP, get asked a couple of questions, check some boxes, and before they know it, they're on a pharmaceutical drug that affects how their brain works. And I'm not a medical doctor. I wouldn't advise self-diagnosing anybody's condition. If you think that you have a condition, I would seek medical help in order to do that. And if you do, if you are diagnosed with a medical condition before you come straight to your employer about, hey, I need this accommodation or I wanted you to be aware of this. Before you do that is is figure out what things that you think that you need. How is that going to help you? Bring proactive solutions to your employer, especially if you're unsure about what their readiness is. How are they going to receive this information? But if you're proactive and if you approach the situation as a partner rather than a vulnerability or a problem, then you're probably going to get better, better feedback or better outcomes. That's not going to be true for every employer. Like if an employer finds out that you're bipolar or you have some other mental health condition, you know, maybe they cut back your hours and maybe they squeeze you out and maybe they stay within the lines because they brought in legal counsel to figure out how to, to squeeze you out. All of those things can happen. When it comes to self-diagnosis, I wouldn't recommend doing that. (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's great to go, as you said, Tanner, with information and then go see a professional who's qualified to make those determinations. And sometimes there are, you know, subtle differences between, let's say, depression and bipolar disorder and bipolar disorder type one and two, or, you know, just different things that people experience. And so it can be really helpful to, to take what you're experiencing into someone who is qualified to make those determinations and then 
get that support. But yeah, thank you for that brave question. I really appreciate that. I want to say one other thing about it is like the reason why if you feel like you have an issue that I highly recommend you getting medical support is, you know, when I started taking an antidepressant last year, the first go was not the right go. And we had to adjust things and I needed monitoring. And thankfully, it only took a relatively short order. We got things on track and I'm in a much better spot. But I've spoken with many, 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 many people who have been on and off different types of medicines at different levels of dosage. And mental health is something that should be taken very seriously. And I think if you feel like you have a mental health condition, that you should really seek professional medical guidance. Yeah. Thank you again for that question. And thank you, Tanner, for your willingness to share your personal experiences. So we have a few call-in questions. The first is from a listener named Jenna. So we'll just play that now and then you'll let you answer it. Hi, my name is Jenna, and I actually have a quick question for you guys. What resources are available for neurodiverse people living in more rural areas and where acceptance may be lower? Thanks. Thankfully, nowadays, I've done this personally with my PCP as well as my uh, mental health counselor, my psychologist, is using telemedicine, leveraging uh, technology to meet with somebody remotely. And I've found that that's been super helpful, especially while managing a mental health condition, because I don't have to, as a person with a disability, I don't have to manage negotiating travel and getting picked up or any of that. I can stay safe and comfortable without any additional pressure in my own home and have that dialogue with the medical professional to get me as we figure out what type of medicine or support that I need in order to stabilize the condition and and reduce some of those symptoms that we're feeling. With regards to rural employers, unfortunately, you're probably right that rural employers are probably not as quote unquote woke or inclusive and fulfilling social responsibilities as an employer. And so I don't want to make a blanket statement for everybody, but if you have a diagnosis, if you have a disability and you feel like it's appropriate for you to have that conversation with your employer, if you need support, it's up to you to have that conversation. But if you want to help your employer become more aware, you know, maybe share with them some resources from the EEOC or any government related resources, because most of the government resources today are really supportive. They give a ton of information away. They do state the laws and the legal responsibilities or, or obligations, but it's more focused on, hey, here's some support. Here's resources. Here's guidance on how to address this or at least to get started. And then often, too, they, they recommend bringing in outside support to help you with this. But that would be my recommendation. One, leverage telemedicine to get support in your rural community if, if you can't find resources locally. And two, have the conversation with your employer. You're always going to have better outcomes if you bring solutions to the problem that you're facing, if you offer support, if you present as a partner in this opportunity for improvement rather than a problem or a thorn in their side. So while they're probably legally obligated to do things, if we want to create better outcomes for ourselves, create the culture of inclusion that we really want, it's about being a partner. It's about providing resources and coming to the table with solutions, not just problems. I love that you brought that up, Tanner, and I love that you brought up and thank you for the question. And I love that you also shared about the EEOC. I had the opportunity to interview Chair Burroughs for some of the episodes. 
in this season. And she really stressed that the EEOC is there for employers and employees. And so they do a lot to provide resources on the employer side, education, materials, and then resources for employees to make sure that they are getting the support that they need, that there is no retaliation for any sort of disclosure, whether it be disability disclosure to harassment in the workplace disclosure, like they are super supportive. And so I think getting allies, if you're an individual who lives with a disability is so essential. And there are those allies and those partners. And also, yes, like being able to really bring a solution to the problem, because even well-meaning employers who aren't aware of what they can do may be unintentionally exclusionary just because they don't know. They don't know what the resources are and they and it seems like one more thing on a never-ending to-do list. So the burden shouldn't be on the employee and employees that do come to the table with some solutions tend to get much better outcomes. Completely agree. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned into season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. So our next calling question is from a listener named Jess. Hey, this is Jess, and I have a question. So prior episodes this season spoke about working from home. How has working from home helped or hurt folks who are neurodiverse? Everybody's different. And as someone who's neurodiverse myself, I love working from home. I love being able to focus. I love not having the distractions. I have attention deficit, but I am a very social person as well. So I do sometimes really miss the water cooler talk or being able to go down the hallway and and chat with somebody. So for people who are in that situation or considering working from home or, hey, do I want to stay working from home? Am I ready to go back into the office after COVID? That's a decision that you need to make. But for me personally, why I like it is that if I'm having an issue myself, I can take a break. I don't have to worry about someone watching over me or like, questioning me or wondering what's going on. Like, Hey, why are you not working? If I need a break from me, I can take a break from me and I feel safer in my home. This is where I live. And so I feel protected and safe here. I also feel at home. I feel more freely to express myself. I I feel like I'm more creative and free to think. For example, if I was on a meeting, oftentimes I get up, pick up the phone and just walk around because I think better when I'm walking around on my feet. And if I'm in an office environment, the likelihood for me to be able to just pick up the phone and walk around the building is probably not possible. And so there's pros and cons for both. So as as an individual for yourself, if you're having neurodiversity and you're considering either one, transitioning to working from home or 
whether you want to stay working at home or go back into the office, that's a decision that you should have with yourself. That's a decision you should have with your, maybe your psychologist or your counselor. And it's definitely a decision or a a conversation you should have with your employer. If your employer knows about your disability because you've disclosed, then there's definitely an opportunity for you to have that conversation and to share your concerns and brainstorm solutions, bring some ideas to the table, bring some questions and engage in that dialogue. Thank you so much, Tanner. What a great question. I love your response to it. And is there anything I or our listeners haven't asked you about that you would have wanted to share about today? I felt like we covered a lot of ground here. If there's anything that I would want to drive home is that I feel like if you're in a position to make something better, why not do that? I think one of the greatest opportunities that we have right now, some of the lowest hanging fruit to make businesses better is to make businesses more inclusive. I can rehash all the the business benefits and the business case for doing so, but it's often these intangible things like culture. It's these intangible things like sentiment that really can make the difference. And you will never make that difference though if you don't start to have the conversation, if you don't start to address the problems, and if you don't own up to the fact that, hey, It's okay that we've been doing it wrong. We recognize that we've been doing it wrong. But today, going forward, we're going to start doing it more right. I love that so much. And for people who are listening who are like, I love what you're saying. I want to get in touch. I want to work with you. How do they get in contact? How do they find out more about your work? Yeah, accessibilityofficer.com, accessability. So A-C-C-E-S-S, ability, A-B-I-L-I-T-Y, accessibilityofficer.com. You can go there. Right from the homepage, you can click on the Disability Readiness Quiz, which is a free resource that will give you in five minutes or less, you can answer eight to nine questions that will tell you where you're at for disability readiness, and it will give you actionable information that you can implement right now to start being more right today. Can we move forward differently? To foster greater equity Even if we don't always understand Fairness we can and should demand Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view Can we see each other through? For me, I was so blown away by Tanner's willingness to share on a personal level and on a professional level. And I really love the opportunity of doing a deep dive with one person who's studied and experienced the subject that we're talking about. And so I just wanted to ask you all, like from Tanner's interview, like what were some of your major takeaways just from the one-on-one that I did with Tanner? Yeah, I would say that one, I think the biggest takeaway from the one-on-one with Tanner and the main episode in general is I don't have the answers. And I think not enough has been done around neuro and body diversity. And so I left after listening to Tanner's one-on-one and the main episode feeling like I need to do more research. I need to understand more specifically with neurodiversity. So I think I left with a ton of questions. And I think that's a great thing, right? Because that's how we start to create changes by asking ourselves those hard questions. Additionally, I think that I try to practice this day in and day out when speaking about individuals with disabilities, but I try to use people first language and I'm not always perfect at it, but I'll, I'll try to say people with disabilities because 
what this has just further pointed out to me is that everybody on this episode, Tanner included, has a personal story and it's what makes them human. It's what makes them a beautiful human, right? And so when we humanize people and don't allow their disability to be their identity, which someone quoted, I believe it was Tanner actually. I think when we use people first language, words matter. When we treat people like people, regardless of how they physically or um, you know neurologically show up in a conversation or an experience with them, that's what really brings it back to, wait, we're all in this together. And I know that sounds super cheesy because there are some serious like systemic issues that we need to tackle in the discussion around neuro and body diversity. But for me, it's continuing to humanize people's experiences through storytelling. And that goes back to really being able to own the responsibility of creating safer spaces for those stories to be told. Because how much courage did it take for each of those individuals to come out on such a public platform and share their personal experiences with their disabilities? So continuing to treat people like people, but then understanding how my privilege shows up, understanding how I operate in this very ableist world and questioning what I can do to change that. And I think that like, I don't have the answers right now. And that's a takeaway in itself. Yeah. Such a good point, Azaria, not having the answers and not understanding the diversity of this space was one of my major takeaways. Um, Even Tanner himself said, I'm of this space and I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the complexities and all the needs of everybody uh, who might be a person with a disability. And the key is, especially in the workspace, is the flexibility of the employer to also understand that and the ability to pivot and make changes to their policies, to their procedures. Having that flexibility as an employer is is so key and so major because, again, the complexities are so vast that you don't have something in place for everybody already. And you have to understand that and then be able to shift and maneuver once uh, an issue or something may arise you can't be stagnant. You have to to be able to to adjust. And, and that was uh, a major takeaway from me. No one understands everything, but we got to be able to move forward and progress. And you do that by communicating, by listening and having that mindset of understanding. Yeah. And speaking of like, you know, the vastness and the mindset of understanding and being willing to ask questions and dig deeper. If either of you had any advice for our listeners of just a question they could ask themselves or maybe a thing that they could do, what would you suggest? Where would be a good starting place for those listening to this episode with or without disabilities or, you know, employers or employees? What might you advise them? I think the ability to listen, it's funny, our tagline is listen, understand, grow. The ability to actually listen to someone else and take their point of view and and their experiences and not put your own judgment on it and and just hear them out. I think that's key for for anybody who's trying to understand the perspective of somebody else. I think a lot of people just take assumptions. You know, you see someone in a wheelchair and you assume how their day-to-day is, but you should really listen to that person and let them explain it. And, And I think you have to be an open person and show that you're an open person to even deserve that conversation with that individual. Because a lot of folks do not want to share, especially that's because they come across folks who they're not listening. They hear you, 
but they're not really listening to what you're telling them in the complexities of, of your life. So just making sure you're showing yourself as an example of someone who is willing to listen, understand, and move forward with that knowledge and use that knowledge to help somebody out or to make changes. I think that's something that, that all folks should take away from this. That was a great point, Zach. And I would add to that by saying that we should be challenging ourselves as individuals to be uncomfortable, to sit in the spaces of individuals who experience disabilities day in and day out. And I forgot who mentioned this in the podcast, but there was someone who mentioned like, watch a movie where the actress has a disability, but their role isn't about the fact that they have a disability. We should be as individuals who care about making this change, we should be doing the work on our end to find resources that expose us to other people's realities and not just resources where like, oh, I'm going to a training about ableism taught by somebody with a disability. Because that again is like focusing so much of the topic on the fact that they have a disability, but we want to also humanize them beyond their disability. So look for movies where the actor is neurodivergent and they're acting out a role that has nothing to do with the fact that they're neurodivergent. Like expose yourself to people's realities and yes, learn about their disability, but learn how they show up beyond just their disability. Right. And that I think is what really normalizes again, not a big fan of the word normal, but that's what really normalizes and gets us more comfortable with realizing like, you know what, I can probably find more in common with this person than not. And I've just been limiting myself because I have not gone searching for these experiences. I have stayed in my comfort, my bubble. And if we really want to make change, we can't do that specifically around neuro and body diversity. Absolutely. And I I love what each of you had to say. I'm also thinking about how in this episode, we spoke about the fragility of belonging. Alita Miranda Wolf specifically spoke about that. And also many of the people whose voices you all heard from spoke about the fluid nature of disability. And so I'm just really curious on a personal note, have either of you, Zach or Azaria, dealt with a fragile sense of belonging or had an experience when how others reacted to you shifted as a result of maybe an element of your identity or your experience? And how have you dealt with that? For me, uh, it used to happen a lot when I was in the corporate space, working in professional sports as a salesperson and having numerous relationships that start over the phone where folks hear my sales voice and hear my name and assume I am not a 6'1 black man. And then they see me in person and there is a shift in how they speak to me. They're surprised that I'm in that role or that I showed up in a suit and a briefcase and and look very professional. And normally I, I kind of scoff that off and, and continue to move forward. But it, it did bother me at times and, and can give you that mindset of, oh, do I belong in this position? Like, should I have this job? Because folks seem to think that I shouldn't. And of course, uh, I'm a very confident person, so I, I didn't let that bog me down and I was able to move past it. But it did wear on me mentally being in that sort of a setting and, and understanding what the general customer I would come across would think of me being in that sort of a position. So that 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 did wear on me. And again, luckily, I was able to, to persevere you know, through it. But that's the, the example that, that kind of comes to my mind. Thanks for sharing that, Zach. You know, in full transparency, I feel like I'm living that experience right now working in higher ed. This is my first year working in higher ed. And 
For those of you who are not aware, higher ed is a very unique environment. You have a space full of intellects who have spent years doing research and getting degrees and have these letters behind their names. And if you are not somebody who has been exposed to that prior to working in such a space, you can really sort of doubt your own intellectual ability at times. And also, you know, I'm younger working in higher ed and historically those with the highest ranking in higher ed are people that are older than me. So I'm constantly sort of battling this internal like imposter syndrome and do I belong because I talk differently. I might not be as polished as some of the faculty members that work here. I have tattoos and I'm also younger and I'm also a woman of color. So it's all those intersectionalities within my identity that sometimes can make me feel as though I don't belong in this space. And it's not specific to Temple. It's really specific to any higher ed institution because you are surrounded by so many people. And part of that, there's beauty in that because you're challenged to do better. You're challenged to look into things more and really take more of a research inquisitive mindset. But I think at the end of the day, it does wear and tear on somebody who check off all of those boxes. And so I'm constantly humbled by the fact that if I'm feeling like I don't belong with the qualifications that I do have, how do other individuals show up when they don't even check the boxes that I check? So it's it's a humbling experience for sure. Indeed. How about you, Darylise? I'm going to take this in a personal direction and just say that I think I was uh, the only child of a single mom until I was 11. And then my mom met and married my stepdad. And that was probably the most painful shift in my life. I'm really glad I have a younger sister. She's 12 years younger than me. I love her. We have a great relationship. So I wouldn't want it to be different. But I think I went from being in this this cohort of two people where my voice mattered and I felt really loved and wanted and included and prioritized to feeling like, I don't know, a nuisance or a burden or like an outsider somehow in my own family. And so that was really, it it did, it felt very fragile for me. And because of my age at the time and my developmental level at that time as a child, you know, I took it very personally and I felt very inadequate. And I think that still probably impacts my psyche to this day. So I think the fragility of belonging can be seen in families. It can be seen at work. It can be seen in friendship circles, and it can have to do with our identity or with a change in someone else's circumstances. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com 
backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. I was curious on both of your opinions or your your perspectives on how showing up as a person with perhaps a brain or bodily diversity and needs might be different as a self-employed person versus a person who's employed by someone else. I can't speak for being self-employed, but um, nor can I speak to personally having a neuro or physical disability. But I think in general, when you're kind of working for someone else, you can almost always assume that you have to sort of do things at a standard set by the powers that be, your leaders, whoever it might be. And back to the remote work topic, that might mean that you have to be in the workspace. And I think that when you are somebody who has a disability, I can only imagine that, and I think some of our guests spoke about it, that life was made easier for some of them by being able to not have to physically get to campus to work and then also not having to deal with people instantly seeing you for your disability because you can sort of have that protection behind a computer screen where they're really just seeing shoulders up and they're really tuned into what you're saying. So solely from that standpoint, I think that working at an organization for somebody else and most likely with other people, but if the policy is that you have to be in person, that can, I imagine, just like it impacts how I as a woman of color show up in person in those spaces, I'm sure it can have an impact on those employees. Thank you so much for that poignant response, Azaria. This isn't really a specific question, but let's talk for a few moments about how privilege, intersectionality, and inequity complicates work for people with disabilities. Oh my gosh. I think, we, yeah, we could we could talk about that for um, a super long time, but I'll just jump in and say that any identity that is perhaps disadvantaged in any way is going to, there's going to be an amplification of marginalization. So looking at someone perhaps who has access and resources and the ability to have assistive technologies or a caregiver come in and help, it just gives so much more agency, so much more room to move, so much more room for choices, room to take back power in a dynamic that is perhaps unhealthy. And I think many people do not have access to those things. And and many people who are discriminated against, who hold multiple marginalized identities might not be able to identify why that, like what exactly is, is happening in terms of the power or which identity is being I guess I want to say like disrespected by others, but they know that something is happening. And so I think when you take the issue of intersectionality, it just adds so many layers upon layers of othering and dehumanization and pain and discrimination. And conversely, having privilege does not, this is an identity category where Privilege doesn't necessarily mean that someone's experiences are inherently better or easier, right? Like you can hold tremendous socioeconomic privilege and still live with a disability and still be impacted by that. But I do think that for those who 
maybe don't have socioeconomic resources or who are people of color who are also queer, let's say, who also have a disability that is visible might have a very different experience than even someone who is a person of color who is queer, who has an invisible disability, right? Like, so all of these things, I think, and then, you know, kind of to the earlier point, like, well, what is the need that a person lives with? What is the diagnosis that a person has? And there's privilege within that, within the spectrum experiences of disability. So I think there's just a lot to unpack there, but these things impact in a huge way. And Azaria, I don't know if you have anything to add. I feel like I got on my own soapbox there for a moment. Yeah, no, I'm conscious of the fact that I don't live with a disability. So I want to be mindful of how I answer this. But I think that I think Tanner had pointed out something very interesting, which is that traditional DEI needs for certain minority communities are not at all the same as the needs for people within the disability communities. And I think the the point there is that with our DEI works, even the work we're doing at Sedwick, I feel like we don't have the answer yet, but we're getting more comfortable with how to work with diversity of race, diversity of gender, diversity of sexuality. But because we still are not shining enough light on the disability community and because it isn't a static situation, it is very fluid and there are so many different experiences within the disability communities. And we haven't even started to, in my opinion, really try to get to that conversation. I think that it makes it, I would imagine, all the more difficult to be someone with a disability because here's this industry that's supposed to be talking about and and prioritizing inclusivity, but my entire demographic is pretty much left out from that. And Tanner also followed up and said, and this is his quote, I can't wake up one day and be less white, but I might be able to see less or more. And so I think that talks about the fact that We've gotten so comfortable with talking about the things that we sort of know about, that we know what to expect. We know, and I emphasis on know because we don't really know anybody's personal experience through and through. But if a Black individual comes in and says that they're experiencing racism, we have enough history in the books to say, and opinions and personal stories to say, we know how we can sort of fight that. We know how we can sort of work against that and and do better for positive change. But because we still do not create safe spaces for individuals with disabilities, I can only imagine the intersectionalities of their racial, gender, sexual identities compounded within their disability identity, which is such a neglected identity in in the DEI space, which is the space that it's supposed to be addressed in if, if none else that to me would be very discouraging. And that's a privilege that I think all people who do not currently experience living with a disability should acknowledge is that no matter what our race is, our gender is, our sexual identity is, we have to acknowledge the fact that we're being talked about in certain spaces that this specific demographic still is not really being discussed in. And that is an issue in my work that I really want to begin to tackle. Thank you so much for that. You know, I think we could talk about this topic for several more hours and still not be done. We'd love to hear your questions and your thoughts if you're listening to this. So please write us, go to the website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, 
send in your questions. You can also call us at 844-888-8148 with any questions, comments, concerns, and leave us a message there. And for anyone who does write in or call in or sign up for our newsletter, we're going to be doing a drawing at each Q&A episode and sending a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, to one lucky listener. So Azaria, do you want to do the honors of announcing today's winner? Of course. For today's episode, we would love to personally thank Oliver Johnson, who is one of our newsletter subscribers. Awesome. Congratulations, Oliver. Thank you. And of course, all of our listeners so much uh, for your support and your engagement. Make sure you are following us on social. Uh, We're on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. As this year, we'll be answering some of your questions on our social platforms as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening. And of course, to all the people listening around the world in over 50 countries. And if you want to contact today's expert, Tanner Gears, you can reach him at accessabilityofficer.com. That is A-C-C-E-S-S-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y-O-F-F-I-C-E-R.com. And we will also put his contact information in the show notes. Also, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, and consulting services. Yeah, the newsletter is huge. We're doing a lot more on social media. As Zach already mentioned this season, you can find out more about our partnership and collaboration with Sedwick, um, get involved with us, connect with us, get your employer involved and engaged, or if you are an employer, hopefully our work this season will support you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture. And as always, each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, Azaria Keys, assistant director of Sedwick, who is a co-producer and coordination consultant to this podcast, our assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Cranes, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. And the music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you to our expert Tanner for joining us. Please tune in next week where we will be talking about Me Too and sexual harassment in the workplace. That's a really important episode. You will not want to miss it. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.